Welcome to the Books and Travel podcast. I'm Jo Francis Penn, thriller and dark fantasy author, bringing you escape and inspiration about unusual and fascinating places, as well as the deeper side of books and travel. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my ebooks for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Hello, travellers. I'm Jo Francis Penn. And in today's interview, I'm talking to Ros Morris about Not Quite Lost, Travels Without a Sense of Direction. It's definitely a travel book for our pandemic times because it's less about glamorous or foreign locations and more about noticing things in a small, gentle way in places that might not be considered a travel destination. Tiny things, fragments. It's more about questioning the story behind simple things like whether a line of bricks in a field used to be a house or how a ship moves across the horizon when looking out to sea. Seeing your own country with new eyes is something that eases the traveller's soul when we can't travel further afield. And I wrote about that in my journal when I did my pilgrimage, which I talked about in episode 50. How can I see my country with the eyes of a traveller, someone who doesn't know how things work here? What is unusual about it? What stands out? What can I revisit with a new perspective? And perhaps these questions can help us all experience our homes in new ways. So Roz talks about how her curiosity feeds into her novels, how she weaves emotional aspects of the sense of place into her stories, and how we can all find our personal magic in the places around us. So I hope you enjoy the interview today. Ros Morris is the author of Not Quite Lost, Travels Without a Sense of Direction, Literary Novels, My Memories of a Future Life and Life Form 3, as well as books for writers. Welcome, Ros. Hi, Joanna. It's great to be here. Pleased to have you on the show. So I want to start with the title of the book because I, I always know my direction. So why is it so compelling for you to be without a sense of direction? Several reasons. I'm also very focused most of the time in what I do. I go running, I ride horses, I write books, I have a lot of deadlines in my life. I'm always really focused and always got a a task in mind and, and somewhere that I'm heading. But when I go out wandering, the kind of travels that were in this book, they they were more with my mind off the hook. They were about just noticing what was around me. It's a different sort of state of mind. It's like browsing. And another, another thing I love is junk shops. So just looking around them and finding little pieces of history just in what's in front of me, instead of having to have a goal and going somewhere. But there's also another aspect to that part of the title, Travels Without a Sense of Direction, which is that I have no sense of direction at all. <laughs> so my husband, Dave, will, who figures strongly in the book, who's counterpart traveller in it, he will say things like, just turn south is it turn what (laughs) and I can't even split the world into left and right it's all a kind of different experience so I just notice odd little things when I'm in that mind zone and that was one of the things I wanted I wanted to capture just the, the joy of discovery noticing where you are noticing what's around you 
but even before you leave then, how do you decide where to go? So do you and Dave agree you're going to go to a particular place or is it really that you head off in the car <laughs> just somewhere? Yes, we, we do know where we're going when we start off. And most of these, the tales in this book are when we've decided to, we have decided to go somewhere. So we just, we decide to go and stay in a little folly in um, Somerset or something like that for, for a week. But then once we get there, we're thinking, OK, let's just see what's around us. Rather than I mean, some travel books are written about someone who sets out to do something like walk the Pennine Way or walk um, across Australia or something like that. We don't tend to do that. We just go somewhere and then see what it's going to bring us if we just open our eyes. And that's what I like about the book. I think it's, uh, it's a much more gentle travel book than uh, a lot of the, the things we talk about. Certainly on this show, we've had people who've cycled around the world for four years and stuff. And it's really, I'm not sure I want to do that. But your trips tend to be uh, sort of, is gentle the right word? I think it is. That's a really good word for it. And I think it's because it, it's my writing sensibility. Uh, all writers are noticers. And uh, that's part of the pleasure to notice something and think I c- that speaks to me in some way. I'd like to look at it a bit longer or find out more about it. And it's uh, who is it who wrote a poem about stopping and staring? It's like that. It's a different way of life. And the other part of the title actually is not quite lost. And this book is also about things passing away from our notice and, and getting hidden and then being rediscovered. Oh, I see what you mean. So when you think you've lost something, but then it doesn't turn out to be lost and you can find it again. In, in what sense do you mean that? A lot of the things that really sparked my imagination were things like a line of bricks in a field. I would think that was a house once or a wall. So this place looked different. What was it like? How did people use it? And we're, we're always under our feet is a great sediment of life. And sometimes it emerges and we can see clues to it. But I'm absolutely fascinated about these details, that something can show you what was there before. I love looking at, at houses and seeing what's been altered about them, because that was a different way it was used. And that that really is powerful for me. Now, you mentioned a, a folly in Somerset as an example. Of course, I'm in Somerset and I think you stayed in a folly near me in, in Bath. <laughs> I did. Yes. In fact, uh, do you know Beckford's Tower? Yes, I do. I walk past there quite a bit. Yeah, it's there. It's it's very tall. It's, it's at the top of that. It has a tower and it, there are 150 steps. And at the top is a little kind of lounge, like, I suppose, um, a flight control tower you have this immense view over bath it's amazing but the building that it's attached to was once i think a crematorium chapel and all sorts of so there's all sorts of history sort of waiting in its walls it's fascinating and you do talk about all these very interesting places you've stayed in the book so how do you find them and uh, any more of the more unusual places you've stayed in the, most of the ones we've stayed in belong to a, a charity called the Landmark Trust, which is a bit like the National Trust. It looks after interesting old buildings. The Landmark Trust hires them out as holiday places. And uh, basically, they have this beautiful catalogue, uh, which is a, 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 that's probably all online now. But it's got these pictures of really seductive looking towers and places 
deep in woods. And it, it's an absolute joy, This just the book, let alone staying in these places. And we stayed in towers. Another one that we stayed in was Martello Tower, which was Napoleonic gun emplacement on the edge of the Suffolk coast. And that was actually the last surviving building of a village that had fallen into the sea. It's that you, you stand in this bleak place, although it's, it's quite comfortable inside, but it's a bleak looking windswept place. You've got waves that occasionally come so high they break over the roof. And you really feel like you're you're in a completely different place. It's it's just wonderfully wild. You can sit in the window and watch ships going across the horizon it's like watching trying to look for the minute hand of a watch moving they just inch across and they are gradually moving but you've got an immense amount of space around you and I just find that so romantic (laughs) <laughs> it is it sounds glorious and I went on that website after you, you obviously you put it in the book and you talk about the different places and it's funny because I find myself always choosing well not always but preferentially choosing to leave England and even to get on a plane and go somewhere else when we have a break and yet the places you're writing about could well be another country half the time so do you feel like they're almost you're choosing foreign places within our country? Oh definitely that's such a good way of putting it yes the way of life there is very different especially if you're on the coast whereas you spend most of your time like I do living in a city then the, the the sights and smells around you are totally different. Night feels totally different. It's actually dark, for instance. <laughs> and you, if you live in the city, it's never dark. It's amber coloured. And you can always see where you're going. But true night in the countryside, you can't see a thing. Yeah, absolutely. And then a quote from the book, which made me laugh. You said, November in Penzance, everything is closed. (laughs) And I have also been to Cornwall in November. And it's so funny because I, of course, I was living near you in London when we went. And I just assumed that everything would be open, but it really was everything was closed, even Tintagel, which is basically a rock. So I, but uh, there are some appealing things about visiting places out of season. So what do you think about that? Oh, I love them out of season. Um, I I would love to visit all these places with no crowds. And of course, if they're out of season, the crowds are taken care of for you. There just aren't any. But there's also an an added appeal that the the weather is often a bit difficult. So you might find yourself tramping around in the pouring rain, looking at places, and somehow that makes it more real. It's like you've seen it kick its shoes off. And you can... I I somehow feel a more genuine connection with the place if I've experienced it like that. And the people also, they've forgotten their their kind of the ways that they deal with tourists if they've been without them for a few months. So they they look genuinely surprised to see they're often a lot more chatty or they're pleased to show you around. There's one place I went to that was an aeronautical museum and there were volunteers in there who were just there for the love of it they were polishing all these beautiful aeroplanes and helicopters and you could just see the love of what they were doing 
and because they were mostly all the people there, there was this community atmosphere. And that, that's another thing about travel. It's, it's not just about the places that you're allowed to poke around. It's the people you meet, the inhabitants of the place. And I find that going to places out of season, you, you get a more real connection with both the place and the people. Oh, it's interesting you say that because I'm, I think I'm clearly more introverted than you are <laughs> in that I just never speak to people in general. I much prefer, uh, staying away from people. And I, I like all my winter travel pictures are architecture and nature and there's never any people in my photos. So what, how do the interviews and the people that you talk to play into this book? There, there again, random encounters that turned out to be surprisingly interesting or haunting. There was a guy who took us around all the the, the various landmarks in around the Glastonbury area and Tintag- not Tintagel, that's the wrong part of the country. <laughs> what am I looking for? Cadbury, the the Arthurian places, and he, he took us on this this tour of all the villages, stand various standing stones, Glastonbury tour, and he also told a story about how he had met his Vivian, who is the the equivalent of of one of the mythical characters from the Arthurian legends, and he. He said that he, he often had people saying to him, I think you're Merlin. Then he'd have to say, oh, no, please don't call me that. But there's also kind of a strange kind of false modesty in that. He's absolutely delighted to be called Merlin, you could tell. <laughs> and so he had a sort of act that he did. And I found that very interesting because I, I think I wasn't a very receptive person for the act because I'd say, oh, oh come off it. <laughs> <laughs> So most of his act wasn't working. He was also claiming to have clairvoyant powers. And there's no way that's ever going to work with me because I'll just pick holes in it. But there was one thing that he started to say. He said, actually, I'm really glad to be showing you around today because something very special and unusual has happened to me. I have met my Vivian. So I said, oh, really, tell me more about her. Because this suddenly seemed real. It was obviously a romance that was going on in his real life. And he teased that out, too. I think he was using that as a spiel in some way. But also, it it seemed it seemed real in some ways and, and not real in other ways because he's quite evasive about it. So it might have been an actor, but it might not have been. But what I found quite interesting was I was thinking, I really wanted that to be true mm. I, I, because I'm a huge romantic. And I was thinking, I, I want him to be... I want this backstory to be true that he's set out and then he's going to go home and this little new light in his life and that that kind of thing that it's really that's part of the surprise of just chatting to people and and getting to know what they're up to. And yes, we're all missing uh, people as as we record this. You and I in England are in a second round of lockdown. Who knows how many more there might be? But it's interesting because uh, another quote from the book, you say, they were only fragments too trivial to be documented in the books, but discovering them seemed a tiny miracle. And I think there's this idea of curiosity, like you were saying with that Merlin man and the sort of the tiny things are more important when we cannot even travel very far so how do you pay attention to those little things I think you've got to find what really sparks your imagination for me it's 
fragments of old buildings, signs that things were not as they are now. For, for the kind of people who that tour guide was showing around, the, the great fascination for them was trees that had formed into strange shapes that were sacred in some way. And there's a, he put a lot of emphasis on hills that were in the shape of a goddess and, and things like that. And that's this is all the same thing. It's finding your magic in the environment, finding your personal magic. And for some people, it's the shape of the hill. For some people, it's it's a beautiful wood. And I love beautiful woods as well. I don't just sniff around old buildings looking for, for fallen fireplaces and things. But there is something that it, that is fascinating to you and really gets your imagination going and feel, makes you feel connected and in a place where you can stop and stare, really. And I always think it's changing your perspective to that of an outsider in that we or both of us have an audience in America as well as, as our own country. And I often look at things here in Bath and I'll put a picture on Instagram because I know that even though I've seen these things before, lots of other people haven't. Like it, it amuses me every single year I put pictures of conkers on Instagram. And of course, we we have conkers, horse chestnuts, and lots of people call them different things around the world so that those sort of understanding that the world is an, an outsider yes yes and and nature is an, is another thing that's constantly changing and evolving anyway you mentioned horse chest, chestnuts I because I ride horses I notice how the the colors of green change all the time throughout the year you can tell what time of year a photo is taken just by the color of green that everything is and that that kind of thing gives me joy too and and then that it's going to be different around the world because the seasons look different and I think Boston probably has the most spectacular autumns of anywhere in the world and we're not going to get autumns quite like that Obviously, you write novels as well. So I wondered, how do your travels inspire your fiction writing? The environments do a lot. And I hadn't realised how much, actually, until I wrote Not Quite Lost, because I went back through some, a diary that I kept. And I, I, I found the seeds of my novels in that diary from travels I'd done 20 years before I actually wrote the the novels and I hadn't realized how far those experiences and and the impressions they'd given me I hadn't realized how far they'd um, stayed with me and, and and so that was quite a revelation I found that my novel Life Form 3 which is about it it's set in an unspecified time in the future when all the countryside has gone except there is one country estate that's been preserved because it belonged to somebody and it has trees and valleys and hills and a, a ruined house in a wood and there's nowhere else left like that in the entire country and that came from the, the travels I'd written about in this diary and had forgotten about so environment really inspires me Mm, me too like all my pretty much all my settings and my thrillers are based on my travels but uh, life form three I think is also inspired by your love of horses yes it is and that came from another aspect uh, I was just saying actually that when you're with horses they make you very aware of the environment and so I noticed the different colors of grass changing all the time and leaf buds and things like that and a horse makes you very aware of it because a, a horse experiences the environment in a very different way it, it can hear things that 
you don't even know it's there. It notices smells and sounds that you don't don't know are there. So it makes you very aware of your environment. And I thought one day as I, I was riding on an old path and I thought under this path are probably the footprints of other people and other people on horses maybe. And it just made me feel there was a, a huge story about buried things and things that have gone. And and it was the horse that made me realise that that we have this connection to nature. And then I thought, what if you wrote about a place where all that had nearly gone and horses are like a conduit back to it? In Life on Three, the character dreams he's riding a horse, but nobody's ridden horses for years. But it sets him off on a quest where he feels I've, I've somehow got to do something about this dream. It's given me feelings that I that have made me really itchy to do something. And yeah, you mentioned the the seeds that you found in your journals. And I've also found things like that, ideas. Before I even ever thought I would write fiction, I found things written in my journals that became novels later. So I definitely uh, understand that. And also it's a bit like you said about the buried things. We had that thought, we wrote it down and then we buried it over time. And then, as you say, it's not quite lost. It emerges again. Yes, we wanted to dwell in it in some way. I know you're very you're very inspired by the the places that you go to and you mm. put all these pictures up and I can imagine standing in such a place and just thinking I need to spend time here I need to understand it somehow. Absolutely. That's an interesting point because your books are mine are very much set in a particular place but yours are more inspired by a place. Do you feel like you need to go to places to write about them or do you find online research and travel and documentaries and all these types of things differently useful? Yes, all of that, actually. Before I, I wrote books myself, I was a ghostwriter and I was having to write about places that I couldn't afford to go to and the publisher wasn't going to send me to. So I had to gather other people's experiences of them. So I got very good at finding out what would make the authentic experience of going to, say, Chennai in India or the Australian outback. So I, I'm quite good at, at traveling in my mind and finding the details that will make it real to a reader and also using it as an environment that will cause challenges for the characters. The novel I've just been finishing actually is partly set on Mount Everest. And uh, I have not climbed Everest. And after all the things that I have read about it, there's no way I'm going to even try. But I was I became really fascinated in the whole experience of being there. And I managed to find people who could talk to me about it and 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 make it come alive for me. Yeah, I have absolutely no desire to do that either. I I like lakes and mountains and I like walking in mountains. But yeah, I I have no desire to do that. Uh, But I think that's almost what's so lovely about travel is you can talk to someone who's climbed Everest. And even though we might not want to go there, we can still tap into the emotion of wanting to achieve some kind of goal or wanting to go to a different place. And it's almost like that feeling of travel is the same. We know even if you're visiting a, a folly in Bath, you're, it's still somewhere new, something that you want to visit. 
Yes, it is. And exchanging your experiences is also is also very interesting just to to see what they felt about going there and what it gave them, because everybody's experience of of a place is different. You could read 100 books about Kathmandu, for instance, Mm. and nobody will have had the same experience. Yeah, absolutely. And then uh, I also wanted to ask, because you wrote your travel journal entries in this quite unusual book. So tell us about that and why you wrote in this special way. I'm a notebook junkie and I know you are as well. Mm. I've seen pictures of your beautiful volumes and uh, people's giving me notebooks as well. Actually, since I published Not Quite Lost, I've had so many travel notebooks sent to me. I'm really (laughs) spoiled now. But that one started out as a visitor's book. It's a leather bound visitor's book, like the kind of thing that people would leave out in restaurants and you're supposed to write, you know, let me meal, thank you. And this book had actually belonged to my husband's mother. It was given to her and she said, I never write in it. So do you want it? And and it was this very handsome thing. So I brought it home and I thought, I know, I'll, I'll have that as my holiday notebook. So it always lives in the suitcase and it's bound in leather. It's got gilded pages. It's it's actually a landscape. It's wider than it's tall. So you open it and you've got these wide pages and it just feels very different to writing it and I I built the tradition that I would use that as my going away notebook and um, it's got visitors written on the front so I I told myself that's what I will write in whenever I'm a visitor. (laughs) I love that and do you think as you said it changes your perspective and did you also have other journals with you? Because I always take a journal and I normally just write in the same one, whether it's a business note or a more emotional thing or research or whatever. Like I, I always just write in whatever my current journal is. But was it just a, a quite different experience of writing in that? Yes, it was. And it was part of the experience of being away. So I try not to make business notes while away because <laughs> um, I was meant to be not doing any of that kind of thing. And I do have another notebook in the car, which is just for anything important like shopping lists or or stuff. But it always ends up being notes for whatever I'm working on or whatever I must do when I get home that's to do with my website or something. But but that book, it makes me feel different. I get it out and, and I open it and I think, right, now I'm here. I'm in a different mindset. I'm in the exploring mindset, really. Yeah, I think that exploring mindset and that noticing, you said uh, all writers are noticers. I certainly uh, agree with that. And so I I do get the feeling that this book, uh, Not Quite Lost, was a bit of a surprise book in a way. And you've never seen yourself as as like a travel writer in in any way. So have you got the bug now? Are Are you going to do more of these types of books? Yes, I hope to. I absolutely loved doing this one. It was such a joy and a very different kind of writing for me. It's, I, In some ways, it was a very different kind of writing, but also I realised it's the kind of writing I always did for myself. I just loved to talk to myself about things that I'd noticed and enjoyed and wanted to just puzzle over for a bit longer. And uh, So, it's, yes, it, re- it revealed to me that I could do another kind of writing, really. 
Mm, I certainly enjoyed it. And I can, having known you for a number of years, I could hear your voice in this one, which with your novels, you the voices of your characters. So I really felt like this really was Roz speaking, <laughs> which I think is is lovely as part of a sort of travel memoir. It gives people an insight into your life. Of course, you talked about your family in the book and a family home. And so it got pretty personal I think was that anything you were uh, concerned about not really I found first of all I had to make the decision to write it and my concern with that was who would want to read a memoir by me I'm I'm not famous or anything and I didn't have an overall great journey to talk about I haven't done anything remarkable I'd just been around some places and noticed things (laughs) and so that was something I had to get over. But everyone I talked to about it said, oh, yes, that sounds great. Do it. So I thought, all right, I'll do that. So that was a hurdle to get over. And then once I did, I thought these they're very personal because I'm saying what I feel about being in a certain place, what certain people made me feel. And the the story about my family, it, it was that came about because I suddenly discovered my family home had been knocked down. And you've already heard how I'm just floored by anything that's about buildings and old bits of buildings and buildings disappearing and then suddenly my family home has disappeared and it was actually quite an unusual and and beautiful house and to hear that I thought I've simply got to write the obituary for the house and out of that I realized I, I had to be quite personal about about my feelings of why it mattered so much to me and what it was like growing up there and I found that by then I was just in a kind of honest writing mode because there's something that that happens when writers hit the blank page they everything else disappears and it's like a confessional (laughs) so I, I didn't have any difficulty really writing the very personal stuff that's in there I'm surprised <laughs> you definitely encourage me because I also like the sort of vignette approach. As you said, it's not a I started here and then I climbed Everest one journey. It's lots of little journeys. And I really I like that approach. So I think it's a fantastic book. But since this is the books and travel podcast, apart from your own books, can you recommend uh, a few books about travel that you particularly love? You sent me a limit of five and I'm going to try and squeeze more in. <laughs> So I will talk fast. First of all, Bill Bryson's Notes from a Small Island. That was something that possibly made me see how to do Not Quite Lost. And people have actually said to me afterwards, oh, yeah, that is quite Bill Bryson-ish. So his sense of playfulness and fun, he is such fun to be with. So that's the first one. Robert McFarlane's Underland is my oh, second. Oh, that is my oh. book. That was my book of last year. Like I bought that for so many people. I love it. <laughs> yes, I simply love it. If anybody do- doesn't know what it's about, he has been a caver and potholer for decades. And here he talks about all the strange places he's gone to. It is so haunting. And also he's so brave. There's no way I would go to any of those places. Anyway. Oh, that is a beautiful book. Like it's one of those books you read a book and you go, oh, "I wish I had written that." That is a masterpiece. <laughs> it is absolutely beautiful. The third one. This is more about travel and meeting people. John Ronson. I love all his books, but I'm singling out them: Adventures with Extremists. Hmm. 
because he meets a lot of strange people who have one thing in common, they're conspiracy theorists. So he's trying to get to the source of the, they all seem to believe, what they believe all seems to conglomerate around one big thing, that there's some secret people pulling levers in our world, we don't know who they are. Anyway, it's great fun, and it's also quite scary too. So that is, that's a really good read. I'm going to talk next about some books about roads. Oh, okay. <laughs> yes, books about <laughs> roads. Uh, the A303, you'll be familiar with this where you live, because it's the main route out to the West Country from sort of the, the London-ish area. The A303, and this book is the A303 Highway to the Sun by Tom Fort. Um, the A303 notably goes past Stonehenge, and it's just a wonderful old road full of strange things, signs that point off to places like Woodhenge and villages called Camel. It's it's wonderful. Um, <laughs> so you can sit in your armchair and read that and instead of having to drive it at the moment. There's another one, if you like that, called the A272, which <laughs> goes to Sussex. <laughs> the whole genre of books I didn't know about. <laughs> and this one is A272, An Ode to a Road by a Dutch guy called Peter Bogart. It's a bit like hum- like Humphrey Bogart and Dirk Bogart. But anyway, Peter Bogart. And he has taken, he's an absolute obsessive about this road. He's even taken pictures of roadworks there. But anyway, there's some great quirky things along the way, like uh, little town jails in the middle of nice villages. And there's another road book I must mention, Ian Sinclair's Orbital, which is about walking the M25. It's great <laughs> fun. If I may have just one more, the next one I'm going to read is Rough Magic Riding the World's Wildest Horse Race by Lara Pryor Palmer. It's the account of when she did the Mongol Derby, which is a horse race across the entire Mongolian plain, a thousand kilometers. And I think that sounds great. Wow. Okay, there's some really varied books. <laughs> I can't believe those road books. If people are listening, if you're from another country, our A roads are, are basically the uh, major road that's not a motorway. I guess that would be how you'd say it. But uh, the ones about the A roads, they're, they're not actually about the road itself, right? It's about the places you can visit along the road. <laughs> Yes, and what the charm of these roads, you wouldn't think that roads would have charm, but the charm of them is you go through a bit and you think this feels really old, and then this feels really new. Oh, there's some ugly stuff here, but we can see that there was a beautiful landscape as well. And somehow they become, they have charm in themselves. And the A272, for instance, goes through strange wooded bits, and the A303 has, has these very ancient parts, um, Stonehenge, for one thing. And unfortunately, they're now going to try and divert that through a tunnel so you won't be able to see Stonehenge anymore from the A303 after a while. But yeah, they seem to be that they have this feeling of being very old. I like that. And I think it comes back to your book in that the the book about uh, horse riding across Mongolia is a journey and it's very exciting and it sounds amazing Uh, but most of us actually do more of our exploring uh, on a road and if we notice more around us then we might find more travel adventure closer to home. Yes and you wouldn't think that getting somewhere is going to be part of the adventure but it can be. Mm. Now that's brilliant Rose. you've given us a new perspective so where can people find you and your books online? 
You can find me on, find my website, which is rosmorris.org, and I'm Ros with a Z. Or find me on Twitter, and I'm Ros underline Morris. Fantastic. Thanks again for your time, Ros. Thank you. It's been great. Thanks for joining me today on the Books and Travel podcast. I hope you found a moment of escape. You can find the episode show notes at booksandtravel.page. And if you enjoy thrillers set in international locations, download one of my books for free at jfpen.com forward slash free. Happy travels until next time.